0: As we prepare for the sermon this evening, I turn first to Matthew chapter 18, and we'll be reading verses 15 through 20. So, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. This is the word of the Lord, as recorded faithfully by Matthew, even as Jesus promised. In the Gospel according to John, it's recorded that he said to his disciples, that the Holy Spirit would come after his departure and would bring to their remembrance all of the things that he taught and teach them much besides. And so here we have not simply Matthew's fallible memory of what he thinks he remembers Jesus said, but the Holy Spirit-inspired word here recording the very words of Jesus Christ. And here we... Hear his words to his disciples in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. This is the word of God. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. and Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name... I am there in the midst of them. Sends the reading of God's holy word for us At this time. May we seek him briefly in prayer. Lord, again, we do ask that you would be pleased to bless the reading and the hearing, the preaching of your word, that we might ourselves be built up by it, that we might do the things which Christ has commanded. For we pray these things in His blessed name. Amen. Well, many Christians lament the condition of the church in America today. And they look at the mainline denominations especially, and then see worldly institutions often presenting a watered-down gospel if they present the biblical gospel at all. They see, on the other hand, many so-called conservative, we might say in air quotes, evangelical churches equally watered down, often by the so-called seeker-sensitive types of worship and practices, not desiring to say anything that they feel might offend Men and women in their flesh and drive them away from the church. And we we have a probably probably all witnessed this weakness in the church, in the church's witness to the gospel, in our society. On on the one hand, while on the other hand, the society appears less and less Christian as well. And so, of course, we know, as we can say as an aside here, that the church's job is not to reflect the culture, but to try to get the culture more to reflect what the church ought to look like. Much of this weakness of the church's witness is because for the last several decades, maybe we could even say for the last century or so, uh, many churches in the U.S., and in, in the West in general, have failed to practice biblical discipline. This isn't the only problem, but it's one problem, and it's a glaring problem. The failure to practice biblical discipline in obedience to Christ's commandments. And that adjective there, biblical, is important. Sometimes we can think we're practicing discipline and we're just being harsh, or just being uh, legalistic. And on the other hand we can think that we're practicing love and fail to do what the Bible commands in terms of practicing biblical discipline. We saw that in our study of 1 Corinthians not long ago. That the Corinthians were just overlooking someone's glaring public sin in their midst, not doing a thing about it. And so Paul told them this was shameful, that they should do something about it and it wasn't, of course, to get rid of the sinning brother, but it was to, to get him to see the, the, the depth, the weight of his sin, so that he would turn from it. The strongest churches with the best witness in the history of the world have been the churches that took discipline seriously. So again, not the legalistic kinds of churches that overuse discipline and and have a man-centered sense sense of discipline. But certainly not the churches that have ignored discipline either. And that especially, we might say, uh, those who have done a good job with this would include the Puritans in England and America, the, the Presbyterians, especially the Covenanters in Scotland and Ireland, who together gave rise to our own denomination, and who adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith as their confessional standard. So before I go further, I, I should tell you, I, I know from experience that people hearing this sermon, maybe not you because most of you here are used to this kind of thing, but there may be people who will hear this later on sermon audio, who will get very uncomfortable With the very thought of church discipline, and they'll think that I'm being legalistic and harsh when I even talk about it at all. They might think, How dare you, Daniel, try to impose this on us? Well, the issue here isn't what Daniel wants. Uh, Daniel didn't come up with this, Jesus commands it. And so, if we love Christ, as he said, we will keep his commandments. If we have a problem with practicing church discipline, our problem is with Jesus, not with the church. Now, another thing to consider when we think of church discipline is that many people think, as I already mentioned, of legalism when they hear the word discipline. But we're not interested in making up rules for you to follow or about how high your skirt can be or whether you go dancing or not or anything like that, that uh, there, are, there are general principles in Scripture about modesty, for example, but, uh, but we don't need to make up extra rules and pile them on top of Scripture for that. Church discipline is about maintaining a faithful witness to the holiness of God before a watching world. Here's what the Confession which we've been making our way through the topics covered in, Uh, here's what the Confession says about church discipline. First it tells us, The Lord Jesus, as king and head of the church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrates. That's important. It's distinct from the civil magistrate. But first of all, let's talk about uh, the Lord Jesus is the king and head of the church, And hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers. So we see, as we alluded to this morning in Sabbath school, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, it it says here about God in relation to Christ. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is the head of the church. We see that also in Colossians 1, 18. Where we find, and he, this is talking of Christ, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So we see Christ alone is king and head of the church. This is why we consider it blasphemy for any earthly potentate to claim to be the head of the church. It's blasphemous for the Pope to claim it. It was blasphemous for King Henry VIII to claim it and for any uh, king of England or Scotland to try to claim it or any other earthly ruler to claim to be the head of the church. Jesus alone is the head of the church. And as the head of the church, he has appointed a government just as kings on earth will have governments underneath them. Jesus, the king and head of the church, all government and authority belongs to him, both in the world in general and especially in the church. And so, as he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so, of course, that means all authority over all the world, and that includes the church. And here in these two scriptures we just read, we see that he particularly is the head of the church. And also we saw, as we uh, talked about briefly this morning, as a tangent from our topic, that Christ is the mediatorial king. That is, In other words, as we saw there in Ephesians 1, he was given as the head over all things to the church so that he reigns over all things on your behalf as a Christian, as the body of Christ in giving the great commission Christ taught us that because all authority in heaven and on earth belong to him therefore we have to go and make disciples and teach them all that he has commanded in order to accomplish that goal that to obey that commandment under his authority he has appointed elders to rule and to teach in the church there is a biblical form of church government and it's a government by elders as we uh, see in scripture we look at some scriptures that show us this keep in mind that eldership is a spiritual office and, uh, lord willing coming up here i think we're thinking of my preaching in uh, first timothy after this series and uh Here in the evening we'll we'll be hearing more about eldership as we make our way through 1 Timothy, among other things. Uh, So we see that eldership is a spiritual office. It includes the uh, functions of what we call a teaching elder. So the pastors who rule and teach and ruling elders who, along with the pastors, govern the church. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1-12 tells us Christ... Gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And By the way, the the grammatical construction in Greek is such that it's not saying that Jesus gave apostles, and he gave prophets, and he gave evangelists, and he gave pastors, and he gave teachers. It's actually saying he gave apostles, and he gave prophets, and he gave evangelists, and he gave pastors and teachers. So those are are one thing. The pastor and teacher is is one thing. And it's a, a term... That refers to elders in general. As we see in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That, that all elders are to be able to teach. All elders have ruling authority in the church. And they uh, are to be able to teach. But as we'll see here shortly from 1 Timothy 5. Uh, some make their living by doing that. But first, Before we get there. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 We ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. And are over you. In the Lord, and admonish you. So those who admonish, those who teach, there's, there's a, they're over you, in the Lord. So this isn't a, uh, a hierarchical function where uh, you have to be blindly obedient. This is an absolute rule. This is Christ's government in the church through elders. Uh, one way that we look at this historically is that Christ gives His authority to the church to carry out His ministry. And the church then chooses elders who exercise that authority. So uh, 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there we have the office of elder, uh, all of whom rule. So when we say elders rule, we're not using modern slang, as I've said before. We're like, elders rule. They're really great. Uh, It means they, they exercise authority. And then some of them, particularly labor in preaching and teaching. All are supposed to be able to teach, but some of them in particular labor at it. That the word, the verb he uses there uh, means both that they will work hard, they'll toil on the one hand, and on the other hand also means that it's the way they make their living. They will labor preaching and teaching. So if elders are called overseers, as we also see in scripture, or bishops, as it can be translated, we the Greek word from which we get bishop is episkopos. It literally means overseer. So if these elders, these overseers, are to uh, rule and govern in the church, uh, what authority then has Christ given them? Of course, we don't want to overstep authority Christ has given us. Of course, we have to recognize, for one thing, that the authority is in the church. It's ecclesiastical authority. It's not civil authority. I remember one time uh, dealing with uh, a man who was confused about where to draw the lines of authority. In this case, it was where you draw the lines of authority between the church and between his authority and his household as a father. And he told us as a session in another church that uh, that we could not interview his teenage sons to see whether they were equipped, ready to take communion he would tell us whether they were ready to take communion well that was stepping into the realm of authority that belongs to the elders not to the father and so I I gave him the example of well could you imagine if the sheriff showed up here saying that he was going to he had a warrant for the arrest of this elder who was sitting next to me at the time and and uh, I said what would you think he would do if I told him you don't have the authority to, direct, to arrest this man. I'll arrest him. I'm his pastor. What? <laughs> my, my authority as a pastor doesn't, doesn't cross over into the realm of the civil authority to arrest people. So what are the parameters of the office of elder? Uh, the confession gives us some sense from scripture. It says, to these officers the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed By virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners, by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. So, no authority to use the sword, for example, no authority to raise armies and invade lands to try to force people to convert to the gospel uh, by the sword. No authority to put people in jail if they they violate uh, church uh, discipline. No authority to execute anyone or anything of the kind. The authority simply has to do with the keys of the kingdom, which, as our confession says elsewhere, the civil magistrate does not have. He has the power of the sword, not the power of the keys. The power of the keys belongs to the church government. And what is that power of the keys? To retain and remit sins. Now that doesn't mean that we object. That we just abjectly have this authority to say, "Well, we're going to choose not to forgive your sins." So tough, right? No, it's you're you're forgiven. If you're forgiven by God, God has that authority, right? Not we do. Uh, but what that means is that church officers have the authority and the responsibility to see that the gospel is preached. To determine who is ready to be a communicant member of the church, to discipline church members, to determine whether they they have repented or not, if they're showing true fruits of repentance for serious offenses, if they have committed an offense serious enough to bar them from certain privileges of church membership, like, like coming to the Lord's table, for example, then the... The elders have the authority to, to determine, oh, you are sufficiently repentant now, so you now may come back to the Lord's table. So that has, that's what the language of retaining and remitting sins has to do with. So to determine what the appropriate response of the church should be to a sinning brother, what level of, of censure there might be if censure is needed. So if the sin, is the sin serious enough in the first place to uh, bar someone from the Lord's table? Or is it a temporary stumbling in sin that, as our Constitution rightly says, uh, not everything that we can be legitimately grieved about with someone else, because they've sinned, needs to rise to the level of church discipline in a formal sense. You know, is something relatively minor? Is it a stumbling that we should just graciously overlook? Love covers a multitude of sins, right? (laughs) So to determine when someone is sufficiently repentant to restore him, all of those things are, uh, are wound up in the power of the keys. Matthew sixteen nineteen, Jesus says to Peter, "I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven." And so he's using Peter as the example, not the Peters, the head of the church. Only Christ is. Uh, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And, and Matthew eighteen eighteen says essentially the same thing with stress on the plural you. The church, through its officers, has this authority to bind and loose uh, to determine who is ready for the Lord's table, for example. And we should also note that the Greek there, when speaking of binding and loosing, actually uses a verb tense that says that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So the church doesn't have the authority to determine what should be bound or loosed. The the church has the authority to let to see how God has determined what should be bound and what should be loosed from Scripture and obey it, and put it into practice. John twenty verse twenty three. If you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So in context, we see we don't have the authority to be arbitrary with those things. Uh, These judgments have to be made according to God's standards. And yes, the church can err in that. And so there are processes also of of appeal and of uh, seeing how these things can be reversed if someone says, look, I just didn't do what you think I did, or I'm sufficiently repentant, even if you don't think I am. But elders do have the authority to deal with sin particularly public sin, and to determine who's repentant, uh, discerning who may receive the Lord's Supper in a particular context, who can become a communicant member in the church, or uh, in really serious cases, determining if someone needs to be excommunicated, expelled from the membership of the church altogether. And even in that case, as we see from 1 Corinthians 5, for example, the point is not... To get rid of somebody who's annoying us. Right? Uh, at worst case scenario is that somebody who's a bad influence, the leaven, uh, that, leaven that can leaven the whole lump, will be removed. But the best case scenario, the ideal scenario, the, the goal is really to get the person who's sinning to realize how grievous the sin is and thus to leave it behind so that they are no longer cut off from the fellowship of the church. So it's not about being mean or playing favorites. It's about witnessing faithfully to Christ and shepherding the flock. So the confession says church censures are necessary for the reclaiming. Notice that's the goal, the reclaiming, right? The reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren. That's what we saw in Matthew 18, isn't it? When Jesus says, if you if your brother repents when you do these things, you have gained your brother. So He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. That's the goal. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So if he does hear, then again, you've gained your brother. But if he refuses, then you tell it to the church. And of course, as we see this fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament, that doesn't mean we come and gossip before the whole congregation. We bring it to the elders. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Think of the way that the Pharisees treated the heathens and the tax collectors. You had nothing to do with them. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven or shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if Two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask. This is talking about church discipline in context, not just like we can magically force God's hand. If two of us agree that we're going to be millionaires, that'll happen, right? No, that's not not what is being taught here. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So Christ's authority is with the church when only a few are gathered in proper authority. So the confession says, church centers are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deterring of others from like offenses. So uh, if you know, somebody is sinning egregiously in the church and everybody sees it, and everybody sees, well, nothing happened to him, well, now, now what does everybody learn? Well, in our flesh, our flesh is going to say, well, then I can do it too. Yippee, I'm free to do that one. For the turning of others from like offenses. For purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 5. For vindicating the honor of Christ. So what does it say about Christ if we call ourselves Christians and then we behave in ways that are dishonoring to Christ, that, that are wicked? And the world sees that. They say, see, there's what Christ's followers are like. And the holy profession of the gospel. So we want to, to see the gospel professed rightly and for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. God removes his blessings from the church and brings it under judgment. Now think of Jesus in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 2 in particular he tells the, the Ephesian church, for example, if they don't return to the love they had at first, he will come and remove their lamp from their lampstand. As they say, I'm going to come and take away your authority. You, you won't really be a church anymore. They've come under the wrath of God. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus lays out that process that we just read. Right, that One, you tell the sitting brother one on one, call him to repentance. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. And the matter is closed. If not, you take one or two other Christians to call him to repentance. And that's, that's a wise from various directions. Of course, it's obedient to Christ to do it. We, we can see the wisdom behind what Christ is saying there. What if I think Harold is sinning and I come to him and talk to him about that sin and then I, uh, he doesn't hear me and I, I take a couple of you along with him and you say, Daniel, you're crazy. There's no sin here. What if I was wrong? Right? That that could be the case. But then, that's why every charge has to be established by two or three witnesses, not just by some rogue person making a claim. And then, of course, if the sinning brother repents again, the matter is closed. You've gained your brother. But if not, then you can bring it to the church through the elders. If the elders determine it's a serious enough sin, they they may call the sinner to repent. Of course, if there's if it's a sin at all, he should call him to repent. If he does, the matter's closed. If they determine, then the suitable response. If he doesn't quit sinning, uh, we're talking here now about an ongoing sin, Obstinence in sin results ultimately in expulsion from the church if it's not repented of. And you you treat that professing believer like an unbeliever. Now, we need to remember these are for not those little sins that we should be able to pass over. All sins are great in the sense that they're made against our God, but there are some that are more our momentary stumbling in sin. And then there are others that are more egregious in terms of of their, their weight, and in terms of the harm they cause, and in terms of the uh, ongoing nature of them. If it's a lifestyle of sin, then it has to be forsaken, or there have to be consequences. Teaching error, adultery, theft, things like that. There, It's not for saying something insensitive, or, or uh, just cutting in line, the church lunch or something like that, right? You know, uh, we don't we're not going to bring you before the session. Uh, things we should just be patient with each other in our weakness. Right? But you see in Jesus' uh, process of church discipline that the goal is always the restoration of the erring brother. Again, yes, worst case scenario is that if somebody is in error and in and, and, and significant sin and expelled from the church, well, at least that influence is gone. But that's not really the, whole, the goal that we hope for. So there is one possibility that somebody is not really a brother and so won't repent. If we practice church discipline, the best result is gaining a brother back to the church, though. With a new, strengthened witness to God's holiness, the church is uh, not really very good at that (laughs) a lot of times. Restoring the penitent brother. But again, the worst possible result of biblical discipline is that a corrupting influence is is removed, and that's by itself good. Either way, the church's witness is strengthened. Think of the ancient church where sometimes people had to be expelled just as today. Uh, you know, we recall the, the famous story, it's somewhat apocryphal, but two students of the Apostle John. One of them was Polycarp, a very faithful, godly man who went on to be martyred for the faith. Another was Marcion who forsook the true gospel uh, threw out books of the Bible he didn't like, said that the God of the Old Testament was evil and Jesus represented a different good God and he was walking in the streets of Rome one day and Polycarp walked by him and had nothing to do with it because he knew that's what he was supposed to do with the one who preached another gospel. And Marcion stopped him and said, Polycarp, don't you recognize your old schoolmate? We used to study under the Apostle John together, right? <laughs> and, and, and Polycarp said, well, I know the son of the devil when I see him. I'm sure it wasn't a delight for him to say that but he was telling the truth. First Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5:1 through 13 is an example of Paul's commanding this process to be used. As we see there it is actually reported he says that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality is not even, as is not even to be ma- named among the Gentiles. So not even the heathens think this is something that's acceptable, right? That a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, so you're arrogant, right? And if not, rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has, done, who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's talking, he's not talking about astral projection there or some kind of new agey thing. He's not like literally there. He's talking about being there. If, if, uh, if he were literally there, like leaving his body and going and visiting the Corinthian church, he wouldn't need to say it was actually reported. He would say, I saw that <laughs> there was this immorality among you. But he's talking about authority, apostolic authority, Christ's authority in the church. He says, what are they to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ? Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, that's a New Testament expression that means treating somebody like they're not a believer. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you, are, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is actually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have, have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And we see in Second uh, Corinthians two five through nine. There, it appears maybe uh, different. Bible scholars argue different ways, and we'll deal with this, Lord willing, coming up when we get into Second Corinthians. Uh, whether Paul's talking about the same person or another, but he's talking clearly about restoring a now-repentant brother who has been expelled for a time. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but, of all, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I actually read through verse 11 there. (coughs) 1 Timothy 5.20 As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. 1 Timothy 1.20 speaks of two brothers who were handed over to Satan, uh, expelled from the church so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Jude verse 23 speaks of church discipline as snatching someone out of the fire. So the confession says... For the better attaining of those ends, the officers of the church are to proceed by admonition, suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for a season, and by excommunication from the church according to the nature of the crime and demerit of the person. So I'll try to finish here quickly. Second Thessalonians 3 6, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. In verses 15, 14 and 15 of that same chapter if anyone does not obey, What we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. So there's expulsion, right? That he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So again, it's always about regaining your brother. Uh, Titus 3.10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. The church is not a social club, right? But even social clubs have rules of membership. Uh, But we're talking here about something much more important, about people's relationships to the Lord, of the church's witness to His holiness. You're not getting what God intends from the church if you won't come under the authority of teaching and ruling elders. And they're cheating you if they won't hold you accountable. Remember the very word church actually means belonging to the Lord. And Jesus says we know that we belong to Him when we keep His commandments. If we won't obey His commandments to practice church discipline, we need to take that sign out front down because it's false advertisement. We're not a church. But church discipline is not about being judgmental or mean or self-righteous or to get rid of annoying people to lord it over others to enforce our own ideas and preferences it's about displaying the glory of God as erring brothers and sisters are spurred on to repentance and restored to fellowship so let's indeed endeavor to practice biblical church discipline let's pray Father cause us to be repentant and to practice biblical discipline and when we see another straying from godliness, and may we welcome our brothers and sisters back who are indeed repentant. May we welcome the insight of our brothers and sisters into our own walks and of our elders let us use their wisdom to help us to grow in Christlikeness, likeness that we may be conformed more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.